Welcome to Coffee and Therapy, where we spill the tea on therapy-related topics, sip our favorite coffee, and share our expertise with parents, professionals, clinicians, and anyone who could benefit from a little therapy. Welcome back to Coffee and Therapy. And today we have everybody. Hey. <laughs> I was just thinking to myself, do we normally talk? Like, I just completely forgot. Sarah. I, I mean, not during the podcast, obviously. <laughs> we have to speak during the podcast, but like, it's the a beginning, the intro. I was like, wow, we're just low energy today we're not low energy <laughs> no yeah. no we just missed... much much better much we're recording better. on a different day we're recording on a sunday afternoon <laughs> yes. we're switching up our listeners don't care but we're going to tell you anyway <laughs> we're switching up our recording schedule to accommodate our sleepy brains because i don't know we're in that sad season seasonal affective disorder season courtney might not be because she lives in joyful sun nope uh Nope. <laughs> I'm doing great over here. You to rub it in, Courtney. Okay, Courtney. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Tune in next week when we have a, set, a whole podcast about Courtney. <laughs> we'll just cry the whole time. <laughs> Coffee and Thera tears. Yeah. Yes. Perfect. Perfect. So we should we should do an episode where we have listeners call in and just crying like. Let us talk with you while you're having a medical yeah. break. Coffee and Thera tears. Yeah. Yeah. That's, re- that's yeah. real life. Yeah. 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 It's real life. Um, but the, ooh, the seasonal affective disorder late winter is hitting hard. It is beautifully sunny here in Illinois today, though. Mm-hmm. How is it on the East Coast? Is it nice? It's, yeah. it's nice here. It's yeah. like 52. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like been, 40 it's been something for us. Yeah. It's been between like really sunny and then like really overcast, but we had random. Yeah, look at that. What? Yesterday was like ice, awful, yeah. chilling, awful, coldest day in the world, terrible, awful. And then like yep. two days before that, it was like seventy. So yeah, I was there and it was sixty-five. We yeah. went disc golfing. Sorry, Sarah. Oh, you were here you. again. Look, <laughs> just sneaking that in. Okay, all right. Just let the I listeners was. know. What do you mean, I Sarah? Date Sarah was there disc golfing with you. What are you talking about? Remember, Sarah? Obviously. You told Sarah me all about your disc golfing. Yeah, I did. I really love it. It's my favorite thing. We love disc golfing. My sister. I was, was going like to say your sister, golfer, yeah. but I am a not alas. I'm terrible. I just go for like if it's nice out. That's such an easy, accessible thing to do. Like once you have the discs, it's free, and you mm-hmm. just go, and it's warm and sunny like that is my cure for seasonal affective disorder as much as I can like if it's sunny I'm outside mm-hmm. doing something and I guess yeah. that's a midwestern thing I've, I've become part of of like if it's cold you still go outside because there's sun mm-hmm. and I've learned after nine winters like you soak it up every second that you can because it's fleeting. you need that vitamin yep. d mm-hmm. advantage of it. i take ten thousand ius of vitamin d in the winter yeah because i'm not used to the midwest winters and if your body's mm-hmm. craving it go out there that's a that's a perfectly healthy thing yeah. to do so do it yeah. yeah yep i ran outside the other morning the day that it was really nice and i was like i'm drinking my coffee outside and i didn't have my chairs from last summer like broke so i need new chairs outside so i, I don't have so I was just like standing in front of my front door. <laughs> like, Hello, neighbor. Looking, looking at the road, just drinking my coffee, and I was loving every minute of it. Didn't even care. I was gonna podcast outside, but for the sake of the listeners, it's windy. Oh, oh yeah. Maybe one day. Yeah, yeah it's not that nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know. Again, it's relative. Yes. It's all relative. It's yeah. 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 Compared to negative ten. Oh my god, it's nice. Yeah, that that was awful. I know that was just an awful week everywhere in all of the world. You also live in the very cold, Noah. I, you know, I I will say here in upstate New York, it has been a really mild winter. Not even just oh, not even compared to New York, just in general. Our our temperatures Mm -hmm. have sometimes Mm -hmm. been warmer than even out by you, Alyssa. So I. 
I yeah. can't complain. It's been okay. Yeah, we've had a very reasonable winter. Yeah. Like, it's mm-hmm. only gone below 20, like, for a couple weeks, which is nothing for the Midwest. Mm-hmm. We could live yeah. there for six months. Just That's so Woo! nice. And it's it's interesting because it's been, like, abnormally cold here. Like, it should be starting to get, like, 70s, 80s, and it's been, like, 50s, 60s, and, like, these last few days have been, like, yeah. I'm afraid of where this change is taking us long term, but that is for another podcast. Yeah, I was like, not our our expertise, what we are (laughs) qualified to talk about. Ooh, nice. Ooh, our qualifications. This is the, you missed your. Therapist. This is your special calling. This is my <laughs> calling. I should quit being a music therapist and just be a transition. Add this to your yeah. qualification. Yeah, yeah. Add yeah. This right there I will that. say, as an uh, you know an educator and a therapist, I feel like working with kids, you have to be an expert at transitions because they love to pull you off topic. Mm-hmm. And like, That's true. you want to let them have fun for a little bit and be like, yeah, tell me about your thing. And how do I loop you back into what we're doing Mm -hmm. in a way that still makes you feel like you have autonomy and control, which you Mm do, but also we got to do this thing. So I think maybe that is part of my calling. That is part of my qualifications. There you go. Is a transition expert. Mm -hmm. Hey, hey. But today, listeners, we want to talk about the qualifications it takes to become a therapist because I know a lot of therapists are listening but also a lot of parents of people that we work with, people who are just interested in therapy in general, and people who go to therapy and are like, who is this person who's helping me? You know, why are they a beacon of, of hope for my mental, mental well-being? Mental well-being. <laughs> it's a Sunday. <laughs> my mental well-being. Maybe you should go outside. <laughs> I will. I Your will. Vitamin I D suffering. <laughs> my vitamin D is low. Um So yeah, we wanted to talk about kind of what it takes to become a therapist. And you have three different types of therapists here. And we can kind of talk about our struggles with that. And a teaser, because I want to make sure we get to it, talking about different types of therapy that are out there for you to experience and different pros and cons that might kind of come with each of those. So that's on the horizon, listeners. But I'll lob the ball to someone else who wants to talk about the qualifications to become your type of therapist. I'm going to throw Courtney I in. Go. Or Sarah, oh, I was going to say. All right. All right. <laughs> nope. Go ahead. Whatever. I was only trying to break up the silence because it's been weird with these weird silent pauses. <laughs> I always, one whole and I always give my students a, a hard time when, when they like nominate someone else. I'm like, hey, that's not how it works. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be that person that's like, hey, Courtney, I just, Courtney has a new microphone, everybody, and she just sounds so wonderful. She sounds really I just, good. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Take it away. I just want to hear okay, Courtney talk. Okay, yeah. well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, ladies. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, so to become a board-certified behavior analyst, um, it is a master's degree Um qualification. So um, you have to have your undergrad in like psychology or related field. And then um, your master's program that you go through has to be like an accredited accredited or recognized program um, <clears throat> from I'm literally reading this off of the BACB's website. Um, I love it. She's fact checking it. I am. I sure am. I wanted to make sure I had all my facts on point because sometimes I don't. Um, So, yeah, it needs to be a a master's degree from an association for the behavior analysis international accredited or recognized program. And so part of your master's program, um, you need to then be accruing some sort of supervised field work. Um, and there's two different types. There's just supervised field work where you have to be supervised by an active BCBA, Board Certified Behavior Analyst. Um, and that BCBA needs to make sure that they are meeting their supervision um, CEU requirement too. So if you are a supervisor, you need to have um, a certain amount of CEUs in supervision. And I can circle back and find the details on that. Um <clears throat> And um, they have to be an active BCBA without any uh, current disciplinary sanctions, who has been certified for less than one year, 
and is also receiving consultation from a qualified consulting supervisor. Um, but this is actually really interesting also. You can also be supervised by a licensed or registered psychologist who is certified by the American Board of Professional Psychology in behavioral and cognitive psychology who is tested in applied behavior analysis. Um, or you can also be supervised by an authorized, verified course sequence instructor. And part of your supervised field work, um, there's two different types. There's a 2,000-hour requirement um, where you have to have at least 5% of your hours be supervised by one of those people that I was just talking about. Or there's a second option, which is your concentrated supervised field work, which is only 1,500 hours of supervision, but the supervision hours per period is increased at 10%. So you need to make sure you get through all of those hours. Once you do, um, then you are eligible to sit for the big board certification exam. Um, and I will say that is a very difficult exam. Um, a lot. Of I will say the board exam for music therapy is also really hard now. Is it? They changed yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's changed a lot. I mean, that's good. Yeah. That's it's really good. good. It's good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so if you are um, someone who knows that you have, like, test anxiety, um, definitely take a lot, a lot, a lot of time to um, dedicate to studying. It's actually really cool, though, because so many um, places now are, like, offering various ways to study. I've seen, like, um, behavior analysts, like, the ABA coloring books for studying. There's a whole bunch of different like online platforms offering, you know, mock exams and different, um, you know, video recorded trainings on all of the um, task list concepts, because that is the thing. Like there is a heavy duty task list that applies to ABA and becoming a BCBA. And so you really, you need to know every single thing off of that task list. And it's a lot. Um, there's like a certain percentage of questions that are dedicated to like each item on the task list too. So it is incredibly comprehensive. Um, <clears throat> and then let's say you pass your, your BCBA or your board certification test and you become a board certified behavior analyst. And then um, after that, you have to do um, CEUs every one to two years. Continuing really education units. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, every one to two years, um, if you are living in a state, too, that has licensure requirements, um, you also need to apply in your state to become a licensed behavior analyst or LBA. Um, and then you have your own, you know, group of CEUs that you need to complete for that to maintain that. Um, but to maintain your BCBA, you need to do I'm looking up the details but I'm pretty sure it's 32 CEUs um every two years and um guys I'm trying to like fat back no you're good I just was nodding I was like that makes a lot more sense I just as I'm listening I'm like yeah this is exactly the same kind of outline as becoming a music therapist it's just Mm -hmm. different words for different things Okay. And I like the 32 every two years for us. Um, so while Courtney's looking that up to continuing education units, if you are not a therapist who's listening, this helps us keep up our professional knowledge in the field as things change. I know people probably often think, how long ago was it that my therapist graduated and what techniques do they know and what strategies do they have? CEUs are sort of the, the answer to that of when new things emerge and new research to keep us in the loop of all of these new protocols and strategies. That's also kind of what's exhausting about being a therapist for the therapists who are listening, because there's always new things to learn and we want to learn everything. And we do want to be helping our clients and patients the best we can, but there's just such an abundance of knowledge to take in at all times. That and it's expensive. It's expensive. For the good ones, for the ones that like, that you really, really, that are really going to take your practice to the next level. Those are thousands of dollars. 
Yeah. 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 And I know, I feel like we mentioned, Sarah, I think it might have been you. I don't know if it was during an actual recording or off yes, recording. Yes. But like, we would hope that, you know, the CEUs that we're signing up for are topics that we really fully want to like immerse ourselves in and learn about to be able to apply to whatever we do. But I mean, sometimes like you're like, oh crap, like I have two weeks until I need to renew my certificate. Like I need to get in, you know, X amount of CEU hours. So that's kind of a bummer, but like it is, I think one of the biggest barriers is the price of them all too. And, you know, making sure you Mm -hmm. find the time and, and find things that you're passionate about too. Like for me, I'm going to be really honest. I have a hard time reading a lot of like research articles like I want to have like a video that I can immerse myself in Mm -hmm. or you know things that are a little bit more interact yes exactly exactly so that can be pretty pretty tricky but um I found the details on the CEUs it is 32 CEUs in a two-year cycle um four needs to be in ethics and then three at least three needs to be in the supervision if you are um a supervisor so um it's pretty it it seems like not a lot but um it can take oh, a no. decent amount of it's time a lot. To, mm-hmm. yeah it's 32 yeah. hours which doesn't sound like a lot if i put it in percentages sarah's favorite ah, go uh, do it. if y'all yeah if you haven't listened to the work-life balancing act episode give it a listen on percentages so percentage wise right it's very small but it it's more hours than that because mm-hmm. you're sitting down right. and watching yes. the videos, you're taking notes and you're really thinking about how am I going to implement this? If it's something mm-hmm. that interests you, I mean, your therapists are working all the time. And I think that's why there's such a high burnout in this field too, is because you, it's a career. It's not just a job, right? Like I don't go to work and then come home and turn my brain off and check out. And I'm sure most people listening, whether you're a therapist or not, that's also not the case for you. Like I come home and work is, is present with me. You have to kind of learn how to put that in a different pocket when you're home so that your life pocket can take Mm -hmm. more of the forefront. But therapists don't Mm -hmm. go home and just go like, oh, I'm out of work for the day. That was nice. And just put my brain off. That's just not how it works and, and the work that- as a therapist is different too I was just having this conversation <clears throat> excuse me the other day with somebody that in a, in other jobs that I've held even like professional level like not like my after school jobs or whatever like professional like career type jobs an eight hour work day was probably like three hours of work <laughs> you know there's a lot of like chatting and printing and going to the bathroom and talking to people and making coffee in the kitchen and like there's a lot of there's a lot of other stuff three hours might be an exaggeration but still it was not eight hours of like concentrated work focus and you know people will hear you know if I say to somebody I have like five sessions today and that's my day people are like oh that's like that's only five hours like you work part-time but the reality is in those five hours like you are present, you are focused, you are 100, you can't be, you're not yes. on your phone, you're not making doctor's appointments, you're not, you know, no. like, when I had other desk jobs and stuff, I could make all my appointments, like, for my doctors, and, like, handle getting my oil change, and, like, do all of those things, like, in the actual workday, which probably wasn't, sorry, former employers, but, like, that's the, re- people do that, right, and that you can't, there's no, I can't be, you know, talking to somebody about childhood trauma, and, like, telling them to hold on doing anything else yeah yeah (laughs) literally anything else right um and so it's you know it is really like those five hours that is for me I've I've learned that that is like my max five Mm -hmm. sessions I think that's a max is my max I can do six I've done more like I can do but I know that I'm not my best self I know that I'm like I can hear I can feel like it doesn't feel good to not be able to do to give a hundred percent to somebody who is putting it all on the line to be in there. Like, you know, they're putting mm-hmm. it out there. So it's a very different, the work is different. It may be fewer hours, like in face-to-face or, or like you were saying, <clears throat> Alyssa, I can, I'm really good at compartmentalizing. That is one of my top strengths. I can come home from work and like put that in a box and move on I yes jazz hands all of that like finger snaps <laughs> it was sign language applause but yes jazz hands yes <laughs> I knew applause 
the word applause escaped me. So jazz hands. Jazz hands. Thing that jazz hands applause. Uh, whatever. Same same thing. Um, that is something that like I'm I'm happen to be really really good at because I like survival. <laughs> I have to, but like mm-hmm. even still, even with that, right? Even with that ability and and having that strength, it is still super intense to have a five hour or a four hour or a three hour yeah session day like that's a, it, it, it takes a lot and even though the extra time that you know I might not be going home and like thinking about all this stuff and doing massive amounts of research and you know I do try to stay on top of things and I like to read books and articles and stuff that are relevant to the specific cases that I may be working on but um it it's it's the work itself without any of that additional stuff is so intense and so heavy and so concentrated which I think is when I think like for like for all of us right like we don't also we don't only need to be like present in the present moment but like we're also kind of like thinking ahead as to like what's going to come next like we were talking about like Alyssa being like queen of transitions like we're thinking about how we're going to get to this next topic of discussion or this next you know goal or song or activity or whatever it is so we're like trying to balance like being in the present moment but also our brain is like okay we need to keep going and you know figuring out what what steps are going to happen next too which is also exhausting therapists are professional present multitaskers Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I think that's a hard thing is a lot of neurodivergent brains I'm sure are listening multitasking and that extra level of executive functioning is really hard and I see a lot of therapists who are neurodivergent really struggling because this work is so mentally taxing on our brains but there's also neurodivergent therapists who are thriving because their brain is operating in that multitask dimension at such an optimal pace for this work and it's kind of finding finding that balance for self of how do I support and manage myself in this moment? I think mm-hmm. there's just so many therapists who burn out. I don't know what the rate is for BCBAs. I don't know that we have an exact stat for music therapists either, but I I feel like, and Noah might be able to answer this too, our burnout rate is probably about five to seven years, that after five to seven years, most people have left the field who entered it. Mm-hmm. Five yeah. years previously. Yeah, of course, without that being tethered to data that I can actually pull from like I was talking I was talking with with one of my colleagues who is a first-year therapist and she's she's great at at what she does and she seems to really be enjoying her work but in our conversation she said something to the effect of well I know I'm not going to be doing music therapy forever but you know I see this as kind of where I am for the next you know three to five years and I'm like man wow yeah it's because there's not like with ABA, right? I think ABA is a very sustainably built field because it's built as a pyramid and not like a pyramid scheme or an MLM, y'all, just like a (laughs) a pyramid where the service delivery model is that the therapists who are implementing the therapy are your your BIs or your RBTs or whatever you call them. So registered behavior technicians, behavior interventionists are at the bottom of the pyramid and then they have a BCBA who's overseeing them that's creating these protocols. So they're kind of doing some of that mental load of the session planning and prep. And then below them are the people who are implementing. So you don't have both jobs. And then above that is sort of your regional supervisor who's supervising the team of BCBAs. Mm-hmm. And then you have people above them and people above them. Mm-hmm. In music therapy and in mental health and counseling, it's not always that way. Right. There's no one below me who's implementing the therapy. It's me. So it's my job to be planning, programming, data collection, implementer, and all of those things in one. And there's not really anywhere to go in music mm-hmm. therapy. And it's like, yeah, you can only do that for so long. And that's what I look at with mm-hmm. my team, too, of like, when we move you up to a director role, how do we eliminate some of the direct service that, you know, has is going to burn you out the most so we can create more of that sustainable pyramid of work. And we just don't have it in music therapy. And in counseling, I would say it's not the norm either. You don't have a ton of practices that have just supervisors. And to get there, you know, you have to like own the practice. Like there's not really a level up. There's your ceiling is being a music therapist. There's not really anywhere to go except for Mm -hmm. those few and far between jobs. 
right yeah was, yeah. yeah and that's what it, that's what it is in my field and you know I'm a I'm a LCSW and you know for for years I remember thinking like private practice ownership was like the pinnacle of all pinnacles and now I'm here and it's like <laughs> I am just as broke as I was before like <laughs> you know on paper you see you know lots of money coming in um but you have to pay for everything and taxes and all. so I am pre-taxes looking like I'm killing it right but after all my taxes and my deductions and all that stuff I'm not doing any better really than I was when I was fresh out of college and what's disappointing in that is the only way that I can do make more money is by seeing more people (laughs) and we Mm -hmm. just talked about (laughs) right so unless I'm like doing there's there's I mean listen don't get me wrong I could do things like run groups or I can do consultations or I can do um you know I don't know adjunct teach professoring teaching or whatever there's other things I could do but those are additional jobs right it's still time right it's still time those are additional like you have to have a side hustle so there's this is not a this is not a lucrative business And here I am. I did not expect to be in private practice at this point in my life. I really expected that to be something like down the line. Um, I ended up here sort of by accident and I love it. I love what I do, but this is like, I'm 38 and this is like the best, (laughs) like there is no, there is no like more money over time. The amount of money that I'm making right now is the amount of money that I have to work with for, from now until the end of time. Well, and with that's, also no retirement because there's no right, get, right, you know, <laughs> and that's why the ABA model financially for the practitioner and for the consumer because the way the model's built, the cost to consumer is really low mm-hmm. through insurance. Like insurance highly reimburses it because you have this pyramid. Mm-hmm. Because the people who are making decent money are higher up the pyramid. The lowest people at the pyramid are making minimum wage, so it's sustainable for the consumer to participate in and it's sustainable for the people who have the degrees and the programming. Mm -hmm. It's not a bad model Mm -mm. when you think about it of like how it can keep the longevity of it. And you've seen a rise in ABA to the level that it is because of that, Mm -hmm. because it's accessible for the clients and the customers. And it's really beneficial for you. Like, as the therapist and that's where, and that's the same thing in building a private practice. What, what it becomes is the people who get higher at the top who are the directors who are the higher level admin, just like in corporate structure who have higher responsibilities, right? You have, you have a higher stake in the game. Mm -hmm. That's where some money could come in private practices. If you have, you know, dozens of employees and that's why it's really, it can feed itself. Um, It's the only way I can see, our field of music therapy going. Um, before I dive into that, Noah put a question in the chat that I do want to make sure Courtney can answer is what is the name and specific degree program you have to enroll in to become a BCBA? Like are there yeah. multiple tracks to it or it's just got one name that people should yeah. look for? Good question. So I'm pretty sure that there's like multiple tracks, but like the specific name that you should be looking for is like just applied behavior analysis. So I, for example, I have my master's in science in ABA or applied behavior analysis, but I have a lot of my coworkers who actually had their master's in education. So it was like an education with a specialization in ABA. Mm. So, and there honestly like might be other routes too that maybe involve more of the like psychology side of things. But um, yeah, I know most of the people that I meet are either MS or MED. Um, and then there's like a doctoral level too, if you want to go on and do that. A lot of people who are really into the research side of things go on and do the doctoral side and, you know, want to be a, a teacher and all that. But um, yeah, but you're really looking for ABA, um, applied behavior analysis. Okay. That would be what your coursework would be in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And like Alyssa, we were just talking about, right? Like there are a lot of options in you know, places to go as a BCBA. Um, I think in regards to the burnout 
the burnout is really high, turnover is really high, but I think having other options, um, you know, ways to grow is definitely um, helpful and supportive in decreasing burnout. Like, I mean, me, for example, I was in the like actual role of a BCBA, you know, supervising um, clients and and RBTs um, for about two and a half years. And it's fun. I still love it. I could have continued to push on and, and continue to do that for a few more years, but I was ready to do something a little bit different and challenge my brain in a different way. So my company um, started this new position called the BCBA trainer. So I'm pretty much explicitly um, overseeing our residents who are in their field work, which is what I was just kind of explaining to you guys earlier. So I'm overseeing um, like three to four of our residents and really just supporting them with um, getting their hours and supervising them with, with uh, overseeing like their clients, um, which is really fun. So if, you know, you are more into like the supervisory um, area, definitely, you know, know that that's an option for you. There's also um, a field, a side of ABA, I don't know, facet called um, OBM or organizational behavior management. So that's really like partnering with companies and figuring out how to, you know, make their um, employees and their whole overall work um, just like more efficient. And that's kind of cool. There's a whole bunch of different facets to it. And there's definitely, yeah, ways to grow. Um, but it's interesting, like I might be going on a side tangent here, but we have a lot of our, um, RBTs, registered behavior technicians who just love being an RBT and they don't want to, you know, go and and get their master's in ABA and become a BCBA. So, um, that's also like, if you're just interested in ABA and love, you know, working with kids one-on-one directly, like by all means, like explore that route too I thought that I was going to have a hard time transitioning to a BCBA role because I love working with kids so 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 much but the way that you know I always did my supervision with my my team like I was in there doing what they were doing I was playing with the kids I was running programs and like if that's the kind of supervisor that you want to be like you still have the capacity to do it or like you know um, Alyssa and a lot of um, her and Noah's team like they're doing all the assessing they're doing the goal writing like you can also still do that as a bcba as well you can be a a one person you know clinician and you know play with the hang out with your clients and and do all that stuff too so yeah there's certainly like a lot of different routes to go depending on whatever you're really interested in and passionate about i think that's what's hard in music therapy is there's not there's not a lot of different routes like you're a music Mm -hmm. therapist and that's what you do the -hmm. chance that you're going to move up to admin is hard Mm-hmm. So to become a music therapist is very similar to what Courtney's describing with becoming a BCBA, except for the big caveat is that music therapy is undergraduate level entry and not master's level entry. So you only have to have a bachelor's of music in music therapy to be a music therapist. However, I will say that is four years of coursework because you do start your music therapy curriculum year one. You dive into it the most starting year two because you got to get your gen eds out of the way to get your college degree. Um, but it is, it's people will say like, oh, well, you only have a bachelor's. It's like, yeah, but I took three years of just music therapy coursework, just like I would in a master's degree. That's highly focused. I'm also finishing up a master's because I do feel like there's always more to learn and more to be there. Um, but the accreditation and the amount of coursework we do is very similar. They've done some comparisons across becoming a BCBA and SLP and OT, um, and the amount of coursework and hours that we do training in our undergraduate is very comparable to those. Our internship structure is a little different. So you complete your coursework and then you have to complete your field work. Like uh, Courtney was saying of your internship, you have to complete 1,040 hours. So it's a little less than that 1,500 or that 2,000 hour threshold. And that's just internship. So once you finish your coursework, you go and you're just working under the direct supervision of a board certified music therapist learning how to do the work you want to do with hopefully the population that you want to work with. And then you also then sit for the board certification exam, which I chimed in during Courtney's is really hard now. If you're a music therapist, it's totally passable. But I think when I took it 10 years ago, um, yeah, I'm like, uh, 10 years ago, uh, it was 
different. Uh, and I was surprised to see how many people were struggling with it. And then I took some of the uh, practice tests and I went, whoa, this is way harder than it used to be, which I do think is good because it's, it's a hard field that we're in. But then once you pass that exam, you can graduate and you can call yourself, well, I guess once you complete your internship, you can graduate. You can fail the exam as much as you need <laughs> until you pass. Um, but then you can call yourself a board certified music therapist. So MTBC, I don't think we've said that enough on this podcast that if you are listening and you've never worked with a music therapist or you want someone to work with them, you need to be looking for an MTBC. You can go to cbmt.org. I'll put it in the show notes to find a therapist who holds that certification in your area. If this is something you're looking for to explore a little more. Um, and then we also have the continuing education units. We call them CMTEs instead of CEUs. Um, and we need a hundred hours of continuing education over five years. So I like the two years though, because so much changes and we have the same ethics requirement. We have a three credit ethics requirement, but every five years, I think that could look a little different. Um, there's a lot of restructuring happening in the world of music therapy right now, which we will not dive into in this episode. Um, but once you do all that, then yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> no, it's like, no, we are not. Um, once you do all that work, you're a board certified music therapist and that's the work you're doing. And it's really hard work. An internship is a butt kick, but it's because the work we do is a little bit of a butt kick of you're on your own. You're caring for people, their wellness and livelihoods in your hands. There's a lot that comes on you for that. So you have to be qualified. These things are here for a reason to keep us operating ethically and to the best of our ability possible. But there isn't a way to easily move up. And I think that's the sustainability that I'm finding hard too, is once you become qualified and you've done this for five, seven, 10 years, you can see, I can see on my older employees' faces, the burnout. And I'm like, well, I don't want to lose you. What can I do? I see Noah's like itching. She's itching to unmute over there. Um, I I just don't know. What no, I, I was actually just going to issue. I don't know that it's a correction. It is an, an addition to. Oh. So it's a correction. It's okay. No, no, it's, it's not a correction there. There's just more than one way to enter the mm. field of music mm-hmm, therapy. Mm-hmm. So like Alyssa said, there are master's degrees for music therapy. You can also have a bachelor's degree in something that is not music therapy, how they determine and quantify what is a related field I'll leave to the universities. But ultimately you can just have a master's in music therapy that you can pursue for the full length of a master's, or you can have a master's equivalency program. So if your undergraduate degree was in something music related or music education, where there's going to be a lot of direct carryover with the course content, you can get your master's in a shorter period of time. But all of that to say, You can become an MTBC with only a bachelor's degree or with a bachelor's degree in something else and your master's in music therapy. Both qualify you to then, like Alyssa said, sit for the board certification exam and become a certified music therapist. And (coughs) Courtney, you touched upon this a little bit with the idea of licensure, right? You talked about, well, if, if you're somewhere that requires licensure, music therapy is it sounds like in a somewhat similar spot in that in some states there are licenses for music therapy. In some states, they simply have the national certification, which is the MTBC, Board Certified Music Therapist. I want to also take this opportunity to dispel a myth that as a practicing music therapist in New York, I hear all the time from students that are graduating from programs, even in New York, Um, And from a lot of my team members, many of whom recently have moved from out of state to join my team, there is this myth that to work in New York State as a music therapist, you have to be a licensed creative arts therapist, which is LCAT. You do not have to be. I am a, a music therapist who my bachelor's is in music therapy. My master's is in developmental psychology. There's, I could go into a whole spiel about it, but ultimately I do not qualify for the LCAT credential, not because I, I, I have the master's piece, but the um, terminology in New York State says that you have to have a master's in music therapy to qualify. All of that to say, I own a company, I 
work quite a bit and I work legally and just fine as an MTBC. If I wanted to do psychotherapy specifically, that is what the LCAT credential seeks to protect is that if you are going to ultimately be doing the type of work that it sounds like Sarah is doing day in and day out, understandably, there needs to be some additional training and coursework to ensure that you are supporting individuals in a way that doesn't cause harm. I, as a clinician, do not have an interest in practicing psychotherapy. So again, I am not inhibited in any way by not having an LCAT credential, and it is not required to be a music therapist in New York State. So that is my... I think you had on something really important too, because when we were fighting for licensure here in Illinois, one of the biggest sources of pushback we had was, sorry, Sarah, social workers. So the social workers of Illinois, and it was because of, well, I really hope I can say that. I might have to edit that out. Um, It was really because of this mental health component, because as music therapists, we care for someone's mental well-being throughout our work but we are not mental health therapists that if someone is going through psychological trauma and areas that are just outside of my scope, I would need to refer them to someone who is a LCPC, a licensed clinical, uh, why can't I think of the professional counselor, professional counselor, professional, my goodness, Sunday (laughs) brain or an LCSW, a licensed clinical social worker, because that is their scope. Right. It's also vital that we know when we can work and when we cannot. And I'm not saying that psychotherapy and mental well-being isn't a pillar of all therapy, that we should always be thinking about the human in front of us. But when we're talking about really healing that side of the brain within that scope, it does look different Mm -hmm. for music therapists. And it's why we get some of that pushback. And I understand why that LCAT is having a back and forth right now in that dialogue. Of yeah, I, I absolutely think that the direction of the profession has to include a license. I think the challenge that we have encountered as a profession is there's a lot that goes into doing that right. And by right, I mean having a really solid sense of not only what is happening in other fields and what trends are existing in adjacent professions, but then also how that translates into a field like music therapy that for many years, unfortunately, has had a lot of gray spots and undefined places. So I I think that for, again, this could be a soapbox for a whole nother day. And I I truly am not interested in, in starting any sort of conflict anywhere online. But I think that For that to be done right, we have to start in any profession by identifying where are those gaps, where are those gray areas, defining those first. And then when we feel like we have a really solid foundation, I think that's when we try to level up and we get a license. Because what we've found with the LCAT is that while its intention was spot on, the application in real life was what became really challenging and why we're now back to the drawing board just a few years later to now look at how do we make a license for music therapy that maybe isn't clustered in with the other creative arts therapies. So that includes um, if you're an LCAT, a licensed creative arts therapist, you could be a dance therapist, a drama therapist, an art therapist, a music therapist. I want to say that's not the exhaustive list. I think there might be a few more. So, of course, as you can imagine, all of those professions, although there are, there are some similarities in that they are all creative in nature, there's, there's a lot of differences within each of those professions. So, of course, being then clumped into this umbrella term came, came with some unforeseen hiccups. So, um, so, yes, I think licensure is really important. And like Courtney, too, there are some directions, although there's not a lot of job diversity within our field. There are opportunities to go in some other directions, like Courtney was saying. So there are additional trainings and credentials that you can become a NICU music therapist. So working in the neonatal intensive care unit with teeny, teeny, teeny little babies in hospitals. There is um, the neurologic music therapy um, training that Alyssa is a neurologic trained music therapist. So I'm sure she could talk a little bit more about that. But that's really focusing on, on the neurology and some very specific techniques that you implement for very specific rationale and reasons within the therapy setting. Yeah. Um, there is, oh gosh, there's 
quite, there's guided imagery. I mean, there, there are some other tracks and, you know, Alyssa, we can probably link some of the great uh, social media resource hubs that collect all this information, like music therapy ed now. And of course I'm name dropping. Hey guys, thanks for what you're doing. But there's lots of great resources in music therapy that are either student led, new professional led that really bring light to what what do what does the public need to know about music therapy? What do clinicians need to know about the potential of their work in music therapy? So we can definitely link that too. Oh, and yes, yeah. Courtney, we'll link for and you I too. Think- yes, we'll link the BACB.com for I will link yeah. all of the professional overseeing organizations and certifications for sure. And I think here comes my queen of transitions moment. Are you ready? So the hard thing with mental health in music therapy is just that our degree programs teach a lot of different things. So my undergrad and my grad programs are neuroscience focused. They are not focused on mental health. There are absolutely music therapy programs that are. And then those are therapists I would refer to. I have a therapist on my team who has both trainings and sort of, well, almost certifications in music therapy and mental health. And that's where there's the overlap. But Sarah specifically works on mental health because her training and her programming looks a lot different. So what was yours like, Sarah? So it's weird. It's so interesting to me because it's it's so similar yet so different all at the same time. Um, Now, (laughs) look, caveat here, I graduated a really long time ago, so (laughs) things have changed. Changed. Don't come for me in the comments being like, that's not what it is now. That's what it was, all right? a while ago don't worry about it um so I have my undergrad I have my bachelor's degree in psychology and the school that I went to happened to view that as a bachelor in arts which doesn't make any sense because I think it was a bachelor of science but that's not that's not my scope of practice so anyway I have my bachelor's in psychology and then I have my master's in social work and with just a master's in social work I would not have been able to really do much of anything, which is a bit surprising. Like you would think that a master's degree would qualify you to, you know, have a job. Um, and, and that really isn't the case. You know, there's really until you become licensed. Now, the, the, the goofy part of that is that the in order to go from an MSW master in social work to an LMSW, a licensed master social worker, all you really have to do is take an exam, sit for an exam, which of course costs a whole bunch of money, um, which is funny because you don't have a job yet. <laughs> there's a theme here. You'll, you'll figure it out really quickly. There's a theme. Um, but you sit for a licensing exam, which is in- it's intense. It is intense. Um, many, 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 many people who I know because I was coming from New York City, so obviously a very urban uh, environment had a really hard time passing the licensing exam because it was very much written towards like middle country like <laughs> the midwest um there are a lot of things in there that you have to speak to the way the textbooks would want you to answer things um very like ethically according to this textbook or this text or this article versus like what would really be probably the right thing to do which is really hard for a lot of people um yes it's a word game (laughs) Noah just chimed in it is it's all you know you have to look at the very specific language so I knew a lot of people who were super qualified very intelligent would have been absolutely great therapists who really struggled to pass the exam and it doesn't you can't, you don't get like kicked out of social work if you don't pass the exam, but you do have to sit and then pay for that fee again. You can only take it every, I think it's three months. It was at the time. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's a process. Then once you get your LMSW, again, I know this is different now. So this is what it was in New York city, New York state. Um, I needed to have 3,000 hours of clinical client contact with my, once once I was licensed, I had to have additional 3,000 hours of clinical contact hours with clients and an additional 
whole bunch of supervision hours. I think I had to meet with my supervisor weekly for three years, two years, something like that. I, I honestly can't even remember. It was a really, it was long. Um, and so I would have supervision with, with somebody who was already an LCSW um, and was also a supervisor because that's also an additional certification like um, Courtney was saying. Um, and that supervisor would process through things that might have come up during the course of my job um, and would then sign off on my hours. Literally, <laughs> this was blew my mind. It was a piece of paper that like if I lost that paper, <laughs> that's my that's my next level licensure out the window. Like it was it's definitely not that way anymore. It's all digital it, for this sure. This was now listen, and this wasn't like that long ago. Like chill out. Right. <laughs> like oh, I'm not I, I know. I didn't have we didn't have like iPods the way we have iPods when I and this was nine yeah. years ago. Yeah. Like I was still burning CDs to bring for sessions of original music. Like yeah. technology is so different now. And what blew wow. my mind was that we had like things were we used computers. <laughs> Again, this was not like this was in the two thousands here. Like we had computers, we had access to the internet. It was not not that long ago. But we still, the way that we tracked this was on an actual piece of paper that I guarded with my life because she, my supervisor would write her name, she'd write my name, she'd write the date, and she'd write how many clinical hours I had that week. And at the end, we had to add those all up. And of course, I had different jobs throughout that time because 3,000 hours is a couple of years, you know, when you're working in this field. Yes, yes. So I had to gather those from different people. It was really, it was crazy. Now, I had no intention of getting my LCSW, my licensed clinical social worker license. That was not something that was in my idea of what I wanted to do because at that time, I viewed that really as... um like supervisory work and I didn't really want to be a supervisor I like doing the the clinical the face-to-face client contact stuff so I kind of put it off for a while and um luckily at that point in time my things did not like expire like my clinical hours and my supervision did not expire which I was very lucky about um and then eventually what happened was I moved from New York to New Jersey and I wanted I had to get my don't pump your fist for that that's <laughs> uh yuck um hey now some of us <laughs> love New Jersey right, are yeah. happy to be from there uh-huh, we uh-huh. like it and you visit all the time you're, and don't tell me oh, okay. Sarah you've lived there for a long time <laughs> not that long not that long um so anyway I'm when I moved to New Jersey um I was eligible at that point to get my LCSW. And the way that makes absolutely no sense, there's not reciprocity between different states. So Noah was talking about like different like state specific, the same thing for LCSWs and also LPCs and L- what is the other one? Yeah, LCPCs, LPCs, yep. All those yep. that, all those. You get licensed in one state and in order to do work in another state, you have to get licensed there as well. Now, and there are... this is why you can't see a therapist in another yes. state. For people who are like, it's telehealth. What does it matter? This is why, right? Because there's different requirements for each state, and it really comes down to money. That's really what it comes down to. There is nothing. Right. Right. No. <laughs> it no. No. It's, ca- it's capitalism. However, yeah. however, that is what it is. So you would think, though, that as this is like a nationally recognized credential here, that you could just like apply for licensure or whatever. But unfortunately there were different requirements in New York and New Jersey at the time that I came to New Jersey. And I would have had to like start over almost and go back to the drawing board. So I said, that makes no sense. So instead I then decided to sit for my LCSW in New York and then transfer that higher level license over to 
New Jersey because if I had ever wanted to get my LCSW in New Jersey at any point, I would have had to start from the very, very, very beginning. And I had already done the work. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> so what goes, I know. Nope. I absolutely not. <laughs> that does not even sound good at all. Um, and so then to the requirement for my LCSW besides those 3000 hours and the, I don't know why I'm blanking on the number of supervision hours, but it's a lot weekly. It's weekly supervision. Um, then you again can apply for sitting for the exam, which <laughs> spoiler is like the exact same exam that I took for the LMSW. There are different, they have different categories in these licensing exams. So there's one that might be like ethics or medication or diagnosing or um, theory, right? However many categories there are, every time you sit for the exam, there's going to be a different, what is it, variety? Yes, yes. You might have, so my first exam, my first licensing exam was super 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 heavy on the theory which I am terrible at theory I I was very lucky that I passed that exam because I suck at theory I'm really really bad at it and my a friend of mine who took the exam maybe like a week later hers was really 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 heavy on medications and so although we took the same exam and we took we got the same licensing out of it our the actual exam looked very different yeah same for us and yeah. And so then when I took the LCSW exam, it was literally the same exam, probably a little bit more heavy on the clinical side because it's a clinical license. Um, but it was really like the exact same exam. And then once I had that, then I was able to do therapy on my own. Um, with an LMSW, you can provide psychotherapy, you can do therapy with clients. The problem is you cannot bill insurances. You can bill under a supervisor's credential in some instances, um, but you cannot be, you cannot bill insurance as an LMSW. Um, So if I wanted to bill insurances, which I do, um, I had to have that LCSW credential. And then I got that and now I can bill insurances and see clients that way. And then in almost the same for, for us, Courtney, I think it's 32 hours. I'm pretty sure every two years for, and now I have active licenses in two different States, New York and New Jersey. And so I have to do CEUs for both of those States, which, and mine are on different schedules, which makes it even more crazy. because <laughs> So it's like, they're staggered when I need to renew my licenses. Um, some of the CEUs that I take, are like do translate for New York and New Jersey and some of them do not we also have that um ethics requirement every time we renew our licenses there's always um at least like two credits of ethics that we have to take and sometimes there are other requirements as well um that kind of seem to change from time to time um I I don't know I just honestly I do it do it I pay attention to it as I'm doing it I'm like "Hmm, did I did I meet that requirement and if not I go and take one specifically for that that requirement which usually has nothing to do with the work that I actually do and I just have to do it just to get the credits for it um but that's basically you know and it's a lot during my master's program I was in school full-time but part of the same thing what you were saying um Alyssa with the internship requirement, we had to do uh, 21 hours a week of unpaid internship for the two years that we were in school for the, like the entirety of those two years. Yeah. Um, And it's the only way, it's the only way, like ours is, it's unpaid. You just, you completed your coursework, but you've got no degree and then you work for eight months unpaid. Yeah. It's like, so our mine I did concurrently now. I don't know yeah. if that's like if that's a thing. Like I don't know if that's a thing that you have to do or if you could do it afterwards like you're talking. I think I'm sure there's different ways that you can do it. I did mine concurrently which meant that it was a real struggle. Yeah. For those two years because I was living on my own and I had two part-time jobs and could barely scrape enough. Like I I literally couldn't afford to eat. I would 
get a 75 cent candy bar from the vending machine at one of my two jobs <laughs> that I worked after going to school and after going to my internship every single day. It was, it was. I feel like this episode crazy. is an advertisement for why you should totally go into any one of our professions. <laughs> It's exhausting. Know, not- it's long. It's hard. The tests are expensive. It's, but it's it's the reality. And I, I do yes. I do appreciate that we are going this route because we tend to gloss over the actual details of what the professions look like, and we are graduating these students that are ill prepared by no fault of their own for the realities of what they're stepping into. And I just feel awful for them. And I feel frustrated that they're having to spend all of this money and accrue all of this debt for reality that they probably wouldn't have signed up for had they known their first semester of program. And it's, it's, it's a tough balance to maintain. Yeah. But you know what? Not transferable. You know what I mean? Like if, if you go into music therapy, you're, you're going into music therapy or you're going to go get a master's in a related profession. Like Courtney's undergrad is in music therapy. Then she got a master's in ABA. You could get a master's in SLP or OT or social work, but pretty much like if this is what you're committing to, this is what you're, you're committing to that. It's a big picture and our world needs more therapists, but our world also needs qualified, competent, capable therapists. And I'm not saying that anyone's going into it, not wanting to be that. But if you have this illusion that it's three hours of work a day, that's mm-hmm. really easy. Like, I again, check my brain in, check my brain out. The cost of things to keep those ongoing credits, the reality of the ceiling financially and as far as upward mobility in a yeah. company, this isn't corporate America. It's very, no. very different. And, you know, people people did try to warn me. Like, they, they said, like, you know you're not going to be, like, rich. And little me with like stars in my eyes when I was, you know, going into my undergraduate degree was like, I just want to help people like I'll make it work. And the reality is when I graduated with a master's degree in New York City in 2008, the highest paying position that I could get, not because I suck as a person, because I'm a really good therapist, right? Yeah. The highest paying position I could get was $42,000 a year with a master's degree in New York City. Like that's where they say, oh, everybody makes more money in New York City. $42,000 in New York City. You know what that does? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. So that and is the reality. And those are still starting salaries. Right. 40 to 45 is still very much a starting salary for yes. a therapist. Yes. And so it's it's hard. I think it's about understanding too. And, and also, again, back to what you were talking about, Alyssa, that there is – there's not a ton of upward mobility. Like you don't become the CEO of therapy. <laughs> you don't become the VP of social work, right? Like you do this work. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> I am the I'm VP. the VP of social work. I'm gonna myself that. That's what I'm going to call myself. Oh, no, I'm calling myself that. That's yeah, I'll be, the, I'll be the VP of, I'm the, I'm the president of, of music therapy. Okay, cool, 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 cool. cool. <laughs> At Dynamic Links. <laughs> Um, so yeah, you know, it's a, it is a, people did try to tell me, but I don't think they told me quite enough. Like what you're saying, Noah, I think that there has to be a course even that says, this is what, this is what life requires. Like I'm good at budgeting. I had lived on my own prior to this. Like I knew I needed money to survive, but I don't think I understood how little growth there would be in the field in terms of finances and, and salaries. And the percentages, right? Sorry, I'm <laughs> laughing and Sarah doesn't know why I'm laughing. Sarah was just talking with her hands, but I thought someone was reaching their hand over into her screen. And I was like, do you have a ghost? Who's with you? My friend. Oh my gosh. See, that's how long we've been talking. That means we got to wrap it up. Yeah. My brain is gone. It's time. But I think the percentages too of saying this is the reality and right that big and and not but and what does that look like for your sustainability right do you want to work part-time and be part-time a barista or something that is a check-in and check-out job that can earn you still money and give you sanity do you want to work part-time and be a parent do you want to work full-time 
and work to become a professor and teach and do consulting and supervision. Like that's how I've structured my stuff is I supervise my team. I do a little bit of direct clinical contact. I do admin and then I do consultative supervision and services on the side that all kind of go into one. And I want to teach a class or two, like what does sustainability look for you in the long run? It's not, you can't do this work in a therapy field forever. You can, but thinking about what are my options? And I think we just need more transparency on that of, no, there's not this big upward mobility and here's your choices. And if none of those sound appealing to you, then maybe, okay, then maybe not, maybe not this field. But just that reality of here it is and here's what you can do to make it work Mm -hmm. or here's how it just may not work. And that's okay. And that's, I think, the kicker, right? I love my job endlessly. Like I get up in the morning and I look forward to talking with my clients. I love what I do so much through every cell of my body. However, I also am poor. (laughs) I also am am broke and, and don't have that up. So it is also really, really, really a challenge to recognize like there's not much else that I want to do or even can do because this is what I I don't want to be a professor. I don't want to be a consultant. I want to do what I'm doing. And unfortunately that is not going to make me a million dollars. That is going to leave me poor forever. Well, the cool thing about the world we live in is everybody's poor. (laughs) Like no job gets you enough money anymore. Yeah. And but you, we do we do need to live and feed ourselves. Yes. But but I, I yeah, think that we, we, we again, have to we have to make informed choices. And I, I think that that is my hope for what anyone listening to this episode leaves with is what goes into entering any one of these fields that we are currently a part of. And what does that reality look like? I mean, we could probably dedicate another set of episodes to a day in the life with Sarah, a day in the life with Courtney, a day in the life with with Noah or Alyssa. We but, should do that. Oh my gosh. But but really, I think we, we had envisioned a slightly different direction for today, but I love this direction. I think this direction was exactly what we needed for today. And I hope that anyone listening knows, just like Sarah is saying, 99% of the time, we love our jobs. I think that's a higher percentage than most people can say in any in any work that they yeah, do. So, probably. But I think you have to go into that fully informed as to what the reality entails because your your system is just going to be shocked. You're not giving yourself a fair chance to actually do this work if you're going into it with a totally different conception of what it's going to look like. So, I mean, I, I think all four of us are very, very into dispelling any myths and really talking about the realities of the profession. So you can end up maybe being on a podcast like this where we are just talking about our work and we're here because we love it. What a gift. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. What a great way to end that episode on such a positive note because we were complaining a lot. <laughs> but I think we're just being honest. We're yeah, being honest. Realistic. We're being honest yeah. and realistic. And it, but it is also so important that, like, I can talk about how poor I am all day long. And also, I can talk about how much I love my job all day mm-hmm. long. I yep. love We wouldn't be here. It. 10 years later, if we didn't love it, we wouldn't be putting out a podcast about therapy if we didn't love the work we Mm -hmm. do. And we want to make it sustainable and purposeful for the next generation of therapists or the current to move through Mm -hmm. and grow with. Mm -hmm. On that note. On that note. (laughs) Tune in next time. But for now. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Coffee and Thera Tea. Keep the conversation flowing and follow us over on Instagram at Coffee and Thera Tea. Questions, thoughts, ideas? Email us, coffeeandtherapy at gmail.com. We can't wait for you to listen in again soon.